Next week, Israel will jolt back into high gear after the long holiday period that ends on the weekend. The hundreds of thousands of Israelis who have traveled abroad will return. Universities begin their academic year, kids are in school, and everyone's back at work. And the never-ending political battles, they'll pick up where they left off, in the high-intensity zone. We thought we'd use this lull to change things up a bit and talk about political issues through a different lens. That of Ziv Korn, the most accomplished Israeli photojournalist ever. Many of his images are iconic. Like one taken of the carnage in the immediate aftermath of a bus bombing in Tel Aviv in 1994, which changed so many lives in a flash, including his. In the ensuing decades, Corin has built an extraordinary catalogue of work, which includes photographs of every living prime minister. His access to these leaders in their private lives is his niche and distinction. Ziv Corin doesn't do the rote snaps. We will discuss Corin's unparalleled access to prime ministers of Israel over the years, behind the scenes, unscripted and never staged. Contrivance is the antithesis of his approach. No, Ziv Korn disappears to the point where his subjects are unaware of his presence. What results is breathtakingly beautiful, poignant, and revealing. I'm your host, Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and today, a true Tel Avivian, residing in the awesome state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us and enjoy seeing Israeli leaders through a different lens and perspective. I met Ziv Korin in the summer of 2015 when he was assigned by the newspaper Israel Hayom, Israel Today, to photograph me. I was then the Canadian ambassador to Israel, living in the official residence of Canada in Herzliya Petuach. The photo accompanied a full-length feature article that the paper ran on Canadian policy vis-a-vis Israel under Prime Minister Stephen Harper, my tenure as ambassador, and what might change should Justin Trudeau be elected as, it turns out, he was, in October 2015. So, I speak from first-hand experience. Corin is not just a gifted artist, but a real people person, who is a natural connector. I hate being photographed, but I had a blast that day. Since then, we've had contact periodically, but it was when I attended a lecture and exhibition of his work from extended trips to war-torn Ukraine that I thought to interview him for a podcast. Not surprisingly, our conversation was fascinating and mind-blowing. This man has a depth of character and breadth of talent that is extraordinary. He's also a really cool, chill, open person without the self-satisfied air one might expect from such a successful artist. Our conversations were taped in May 2023 and late August. Stay with us for an amazing journey through recent Israeli history and key world events, interpreted through the eyes of the artist, without words. In the coming days, we will be posting an essay of images to accompany this podcast, the first in a two-part series of the work of Israeli master photojournalist, Ziv Korn. Ziv Korn, so nice to see you. Pleasure to have you. 
And thank you for speaking with State of Tel Aviv. Really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about so many things. But let's start at the beginning. Let's do. Let's go. I've known you now for seven years. I think we first met. It was about seven years ago. But since then, I've been watching your work, which is, it's brilliant. But tell me, how did you get into this whole photography thing in the first place? I started in art school, in the high school, Tel Mayalin High School. In Tel Aviv? In Tel Aviv. In, it, actually, it's in Giva Time, right on the border of Tel Aviv. We'll pretend. So it's, yeah, exactly. Kids from all over the country look to try and, like, to be accepted to this school because it really has a good reputation. And I studied art. I did not study photography. They didn't have a photography class at the time. After I graduated, I had a motorcycle accident. And I couldn't do anything very physical in the army, which I had to do my three-year service. And I was literally looking for anything different and inspiring to do, to go through the three years I need to do my service. And I heard that they used to have this military magazine, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. But I heard that they're looking for a photographer, and I sent them my portfolio. That, I must say, wasn't good, but I was accepted. And it's funny because now, in the last years, doing my reserve service, part of the thing they do, that I go over portfolios of photographers to accept them to the idea of spokesmen or different jobs in photography in the Army. And I must say that I nowadays see such talented Mm. Great photographers, very young and pretty experienced, and uh, they're way advanced and much better than I was when I was accepted as a photographer in the Army. So this is basically how I started. I became a military photographer, and that pretty much gave me the experience. And I did not expect it to become a career. I just thought it would be a nice way to go through the three years that I need to serve. And then... A few months before I was about to finish my service was mm. the first Gulf War in the 91. And uh, I think that was the point where I realized that this is what I want to do in life. I want to become a photojournalist. I finished the service. I was accepted. My first job was in the government press office in Jerusalem. And that I, must have been interesting. Actually, I have to admit it was a bit boring. Shemi was a prime minister. And the whole administration were people that from my perspective, being 21 at the time, were extremely old. Now, I don't think that they were that old, but I felt uncomfortable. And not only that, I wanted to run, and my pictures were not really getting published because you're working for the archive of the, the country. And I wanted my friends to run back to the newspaper and be on the cover the next day. So after a year there, I decided I want to move on. And I came to Yediot Honot with my portfolio saying, I have a motorcycle, I have a camera, and I'm willing to work 24-7. And the guy that was then in charge of the photographers opened his drawer, he gave me a pager, and he said, let's give it a try for a month and see how this thing works. And that was a bit over 30 years ago, and they've been working for newspapers ever since. That was 30 years ago. And since that editor gave the nice kid a break, Corin has been in the business nonstop, doing editorial work, representing some key brands in the industry as an ambassador, and in recent years, running photography workshops all over the world, and more. Corin complements his editorial gigs with in-depth book projects. He has published 21 so far. He recently returned from Indonesia, his 98th country visited, 
and that's not a simple feat for someone limited to traveling on an Israeli passport. Israel and Indonesia do not have diplomatic relations, for now. So tell me, being Israeli, has that helped, hindered, or just been a neutral factor in your career? Listen, I've never been anything else, so it's hard for me to know, uh, to predict how it would have been for me living in a different country. First of all, obviously, Israel is my backyard. I was born and raised here. I've been traveling a lot, but I'm connected here, and I've done most of my stories, obviously, here in Israel. Um, You come from a family with very deep roots in Israel, correct? Correct. I'm a seventh generation in Israel. I'm total secular. I must say that there are definitely advantages and disadvantages uh, to that, both if I'm looking towards working in Israel or, or abroad, because in Israel, obviously, I have a big advantage of shooting on the Israeli side, but when I'm covering the conflict, I come with a big disadvantage wanting to photograph the Palestinian side, for example. And I truly believe that you have to photograph on both sides because you can't be a storyteller and only to tell one part of the story. So for many years, I've been traveling back and forth and doing a lot of stories on the Palestinian side. And I have to admit that it really became extremely dangerous because the fact that I'm an Israeli put me not only in a big disadvantage, but in real danger. And it's, it became harder and harder for me to work on both sides. I do believe that showing only one side of the conflict is a bit of a propaganda and not being complete. But it became a big disadvantage being an Israeli trying to photograph on both sides. And talking about the world, obviously being a photoist with an Israeli passport is a bit pathetic. Because, for example, shooting the Arab Spring was impossible. Because I could not travel to Syria. I know there are a lot of countries that I could not travel to. I wanted to do a story in Bangladesh, and Israel doesn't have a relationship with uh, Bangladesh. And I can't travel because I'm holding an Israeli passport. And we're not in war, and we don't have any relations with uh, Bangladesh. So there are a lot of disadvantages to that as well. Interesting. Has the issue ever been a problem with your editors or assignment editors? you know, that you're an Israeli photojournalist and they're going to send you to any particular country that you do have access to. Has the fact that you're Israeli ever come up as an issue? The only issue, if the fact that I'm an Israeli puts me in danger. I wanted to be embedded for Newsweek with American forces in Iraq. And at some point, I thought that I'm almost there because if I'm embedded and I'm traveling with the soldiers, and at some point they said, impossible, we're sorry, it's not going to happen. So, yeah, so I, I feel the disadvantage, obviously. Not the fact that I'm an Israeli because I have a point of view or something. That, that was never the case because I think if you are respected for the journalist, they trust you that you will do your work properly and not be affected by the fact that personally you think this way or another. And I must say, you know, this is something that led me from the day I'm holding a camera. Regardless if I'm doing a reportage on a prime minister, which is a right-winger or a left-winger, I'm a professional. The fact that I vote the way I do, it has nothing to do with the way I'm going to photograph this particular person. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. This moment in history is considered by many to be the most critical 
and existential in Israel's 75-year history. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com, all one word. Now, back to the podcast. I have to ask, because one of my favorite photographs of yours that I've seen is of Ariel Sharon sitting in, in an art gallery. Can you tell the story of that photo? Yeah, actually, it was at the end of the day, it's all about access. And I think this is the most important thing probably in, in our profession, especially today, especially that everybody's shooting everything and it became so hard to really find the right photo and to do something different than other photographers. I think that at the end of the day, if I come to do a photo shoot and I find myself with another five or six photographers, I made the wrong calculation of getting to my destination. I need to work in a way that I find the exclusive project that I want to work on and I have better access than for other photographers or I'll find a way to do it differently than other photographers. I got a phone call from one of Ariel Sharon's advisors saying that he, he loved art. That is not something that a lot of people know about him. Nor would we expect based on what we do know about exactly. him. Exactly. And he literally asked to come and visit Tel Aviv Museum to see... Picasso's show and he came early in the morning the museum was still closed and they opened it for him in the morning and then the guy told me no Sharon is going to visit the museum tomorrow it will be early in the morning come through this and this door and it's an exclusive and you're the only one getting the access to photograph that and obviously I came and he was there and at the beginning there were a few people traveling with him and then he walked a bit by himself and the um, chief curator of the museum was escorting him and telling him a story about every picture. And then he got a bit tired and he sat on this bench by himself. And it's like an open shot that you can see four of Picasso's paintings behind him. And it's very rare to see a prime minister alone because there's always somebody coming in wanting to be in the picture or wanting to tell him something or whatever. And then for a split second, he was there by himself. And it's, it's a picture that really moved people. It really got into the hearts yeah. of people because of what we know of Ariel Sharon and his personality and how different this is from what we know about him. And I have to say, seeing that photo for the first time, my initial reaction was that had to have been staged because of exactly that, what you just said. I must say something. First of all, I'm a documentarist, and I never stage the people I photograph, never. And I'm very strict, and I work with a very strong ethical code. I don't Photoshop, and I think that, especially nowadays, the necessity of telling the truth, and I think that's probably one of the most essential things that we have left in photography is the credibility of it. And... I understand the necessity of giving it as it is. I will not take out any part of the picture or do anything or any kind of manipulation to make the picture look better or even adding to that, 
not to make it look different than the situation was as it was in the field. So it wasn't staged. I didn't tell him to sit there. I hardly talked to I But I got to tell you something about Sean. He was, I had a very good relationship with Sean. And I never voted for him. Did you know him before you photographed him that day? Oh, Did yeah, you? of oh. course. I've been really good contact with a lot of politicians. And I documented all the prime ministers. I always had really good access. And it started with, with Barack before he became a prime minister, when he was just running for elections. And it was exactly coming from what I just said. I was tr running with a group of photographers, documenting him, speaking on the microphone in different events. And I thought that I need to go in a deeper layer than that in order to bring something meaningful. And I wrote him a letter. He was nobody at the time. He was obviously was a chief of staff and he was a minister, but worldwide nobody knew who Barack was. And I said, and I remember when I was writing him, that was in 1999, before he became a prime minister. I wrote in the letter that at the end of the day, the picture that people remember or the ones who will get into history are the private images of him in his private environment and so on, and not just him speaking in rallies and events and so on. And I don't want to be working for the party and I don't want to be paid. I just want the access to be close to him and document his campaign. And I spent three months. I was still shooting film at the time. And I took the risk of if he will not win the elections, I can take all the hundreds of rolls of film that I photographed and put them in the garbage. But at the end of the day, he did win the elections. And I had a really exclusive, amazing set of pictures of him throughout his campaign and showing the back office of him working on the campaign at home and a bit with his wife. Oh, the in-between hours that are always a good potential of good frames and with his family and daughters and so on. And that was a big thing in Israel at the time. I didn't invent that. I've seen great American photographers documenting leaders and, and so on. And, but it was very new in Israel. And after that, I got a reputation of someone that could be trusted. And the second time when he ran for election and he lost to Sharon, it was the PR of Sharon was the one who contacted me and said, if you want to do like exclusive things with Sharon, I will give you the access to do that. And since then, I've been doing that pretty much with every prime minister. Those are so interesting for political junkies like me, especially those behind the scene visuals. Yeah. When you took your first big risk with Barack, you were still in your 20s, correct? Yeah, I was before, a bit before becoming 30. So then that must have catapulted you into a real next level in yeah. Israel. Yeah, I think it did in a way because everybody was shocked from this perspective of photography. Because until then, it was all uh, like on the same layer of not getting deep, really yeah. deep with people who are running for prime ministership or prime minister themselves. And I photographed before and I was photographing uh, Netanyahu when he became in power in 96. And I've literally been documenting him since. Of course, I want to talk about Netanyahu. He's been on the scene for decades. I probably became aware of him before you did because his big breakout moment was really in the late 80s, right? Yeah, when, when, he, was when he was in, in the UN. Exactly. And that iconic photo of him going to meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe and getting his blessing. But 
BB was all over TV screens, and he was extraordinary. Yes. He was exceptional. He was powerful. He was an Israeli. Like, we don't have Israelis like that who dress like us, who speak like us, who communicate the way we do. Um, amazing speaker. I want to hear about your experience with him, when you and how you, over the years, got to know him through photographing him. And if you could just bring us up to the present moment, what your observations are of the man today. Okay, so I'll start by saying that I don't think there's any politician that I photographed for such a long time. I think the only one was probably Perez, but he passed away a few years ago. So now, Bibi, I've been literally photographing him for 26, 7, 8 years from when he was running for prime ministership in 1996. He was a figure already in the early 90s, because He's, even leading up to Robin's murder. I mean, he was definitely a figure, but I have to admit, only when he started paying attention seriously when he was running for prime ministership. And when I was photographing him, when he went to the Wailing Wall, the kids were like three and five or six. These were the ages that are now, his older son is, I think, 30? Early 30s. Yeah. yeah. So it's been quite a while. Throughout the years, I was in situations where very intimate situations, I must admit, with his family, with his kids, with his wife. And I was really able to get very close. And him and people surrounding him are very suspicious. Mistrustful. Yeah, yeah. I could use that word. And it's not easy to be as close as I am, but to stay natural. Because at some point, it really became, it's us and them. And in the close circles, you really can't access that anymore. And it became even harder in the last couple of years. But I maintain a good relationship. So when they need something to do with Bibi, obviously during elections or even during the time that you know he's a prime minister, I will be the one that they will ask for me to get a different portrait. And it actually it goes both ways. I must tell you that when he was doing a big article for Perry Match, and they wanted like an exclusive intimate images of him in his house. I think that his administration was the one who said, okay, so Ziv Koren will do it because he is trusted to get into the house and do a decent set of images for the reportage on him. In the photo essay accompanying this podcast, we will include many of Koren's photographs taken over the decades of Benjamin Netanyahu, which expose and reveal a different quality to this very powerful man. Most interesting to me, however, is the photo of Bibi playing chess with his father, Ben Sion, at once a figure he admired and feared. Corin tells us the story of how he came to be in the home of Ben Sion Netanyahu on that day. But I've got to tell you an interesting story. So, please. A few years ago, I have to look at the date, but I think it was like at least 10 years ago. Bibi was a, a prime minister, and I got an exclusive. Again, I got a phone call. Bibi's going to go somewhere in Jerusalem, and it's a private thing. So if you want to take some pictures, you're willing to join, but come quietly and take some photos. And it was someplace in Jerusalem, and I went, and I did. He obviously knows me very well. We always shake hands, and how are you, and so on. And... It ended at one o'clock at night, and I was escorting him to the car, and I was walking nearby, and then he calls me, and he says, I got to tell you something. There's one picture that you took. It's one of the pictures that I like the most, is 
when I was playing chess with my father, and I really loved that picture. And I said, oh, I said, thank you, it's very flattering. And we said goodnight. I drove back to Tel Aviv. When I got home, it was like 2 o'clock, I think, and I still went down to the basement where my office was in my old apartment, and I was going through the images that I photographed. So I think I went to bed. It was at least like maybe 3 or even later than that. At 6 a.m., I get a pager that his father passed away. That was like a few hours after wow. he was asking for the image. So it was really shocking. So I printed pictures and I went to the Shiva without a camera just to give him the images, the print that he asked for. I traveled abroad with him a couple of times and I'm working in his house. And again, it, you know, I must admit, it's, I did not vote for him, but I have a good relationship and I think I got to tell you something. Oh, and it doesn't matter who the politician that I'm photographing uh, is. I don't want to put them in a position where they feel uncomfortable with my presence. And obviously, walking in your house with a camera, obviously, it's an uncomfortable situation for anybody, by the way. And it's not that I'm trying to get a glimpse of him eating or him looking in a bad way. It's not because I like him or not. I just don't do this kind of... It's not my thing. I want to show an intimate moment, yes, and it doesn't matter if it's Barack when I come to his house and he's literally playing the piano. And he plays amazing, by the way. And I get, I know, a picture of that of, or him having breakfast with his wife. And it can be that I come to Olmert's house and he's crazy about soccer. He has a ball and he's just jumping the ball. And all these small moments that it's a second before they know I'm coming and they're doing something else and I just get a, just this shot of them doing something that is real. I don't want to, someone to bring a dog in because it would be nice to have Bibi with a dog. If he doesn't have a dog, I don't want to take a picture with a dog because I'm not part of the campaign. I don't shoot these images because I want to show him at his best. I want to show the person. You want to show him. Exactly. So yeah. once, actually, I think it was like, Two years ago, there were so many elections, I don't even remember on which date that was, but I came to the prime minister's residence when Bibi was a prime minister, and then there was another elections coming, and he was in a training outfit, and he was eating an apple, and it was so real. You can believe that the picture, it's not staged, I didn't ask him to put it on, this is what he was wearing, and so I always like to photograph something that is really happening for real, and not... Nobody is staging that for me. But he has changed the way politicians and prime ministers certainly dress. Before Bibi, there weren't suits and ties in the prime minister's office. They were, but only for like official. He comes to work with a suit and tie every morning, even if he right. doesn't have any important meetings. He okay? also wears good suits and ties. Yeah, that's true. Not old school. I'm just saying that I, was, I came to Gantz to photograph him, and then I understood that he and his wife are jogging every other day and so they were not jogging the same day but then I asked when it's going to happen the next time and then two days later I came near his house they have this nice forest that they run to and I waited in a certain location again it wasn't staged for me I did not ask him where to run they just told me the route and I was waiting on the route in a nice location that I thought could make a nice picture they passed by me they kept on running 
I got five, six, seven shots of them coming towards me and moving on. And, and this is the shot I need. I'm not going to stage that and ask them what to wear. Okay. Not part of the campaign. I don't want them to look like in their best. I want it to look real. I want it to be sweaty. So the person looking at the picture will believe that this moment was a real thing and wasn't staged for the picture. Of your many moments of interacting with and photographing BB, is there one that stands out for you? I think that the scene of him with his father was, it's not only for him that it was a very special moment. I thought that he was different when he was visiting his father. He had a lot of respect and admiration for his dad. And there was a very intimate thing that there were, and I think only once I got them when BB came to visit him and they were really, really just the two of them. And again, it wasn't a long period of time and I was there for, I think, 20 minutes. But there was a very interesting set of pictures. This moment in history is considered by many to be the most critical and existential in Israel's 75-year history. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com, all one word. Now, back to the podcast. Have yeah. you had the opportunity in the last year or so, since he became prime minister again, to photograph BB? Before elections, not after. Not since. No, not since. So before elections, when he was in opposition. Yeah, I think running, campaigning, I did, in that period of time, I did have an opportunity to photograph him a couple of times. And did you notice any changes from, it's extraordinary to have the opportunity to engage with someone over the course of almost 30 years as you have. Yes. And never mind for him to survive at the top for such a long period. So have you seen changes in the way he presents, and I'm particularly interested in your observations from the period leading up to the last election? Yeah, you know, I think that the biggest change, I think that Bibi understood before anybody else the power of social media. And at some point, I think that he pretty much gave up on traditional media and exchanged that to talking directly to his audience, mostly through Facebook, but he uses TikTok and Instagram, and he has like a full team doing social media for him and that is a big change because i almost feel like he gave up on on legacy uh, media yeah it seems like he doesn't want to do it and he wants to talk directly to his potential voters and he became extremely popular on social media and that kind of put him in a situation where he does everything by himself he doesn't need to run for television shows what he's able of doing by himself on his social media is far more effective for him than going on national TV and addressing the country. Although he does, yeah, I mean, he certainly, you have a different kind of reach and you can speak directly to the people, but he certainly seems to have high regard for foreign media. He spends a lot of time on foreign legacy yeah, media, not yeah. Israeli. Yeah, yeah. For that, yeah, he will definitely keep on giving interviews to foreign media because... It's credibility. 
for him, I think. It yeah, but him, he, he sees he, it as giving him a credibility. Yeah, he seems a bit isolated, isolating himself, I think, from a lot of people. He works with a very small crew, very, very small amount of people have access to him. He became, I don't know He's, if it's paranoia or not trusting too many people. It's not even people from the party. It's his advisors, a small group of people that are protecting him, and he's not as open as he was before. At this point, Korn and I segued into a long discussion about the extraordinary period in Israeli history and life. I'll spare you a lot of it, which is probably only of interest to someone who really lives it, day in and day out. So we'll jump right to the night of March 26, when Prime Minister Netanyahu announced at 9 p.m., that he was firing the Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant, who had stated publicly the night before that he supported stopping the judicial overhaul legislation that was tearing the country apart. The reaction to Bibi's quite unexpected move was immediate and nationwide. I think that Israel is going through a very dramatic period these days. Let's talk about that. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is during this dramatic period, and we both live in Tel Aviv, I don't know about you, but every week that I am in town, in the country, I'm a Kaplan, um, joining the protesters. And I've also been on the Ayalon more than once, but particularly on that Sunday night. When, on the 26th. Yeah, when things just went. Yeah, when he fired the... Gallant. The Gallant, yeah. yeah. I'm sure, just like me, you were probably sitting on your couch at home, and at 940... Whichever WhatsApp group you were on, you get the call. Exactly. And we all literally jumped off our couches. We did. And that made was a it very down. dramatic moment. And I wanted to talk to you about that because I'm sure that you're there with your camera. Yes, I was. Okay. Tell me so about that night. I've been documenting the demonstrations from pretty much from day one. And we, Yediot even had a special supplement on Passover. That was, and the whole supplement was huge pictures of documenting the whole all the protests from pretty much from day one until Passover, obviously, including the dramatic night of the 26th when Gallant was fired by Netanyahu. And Within 40 minutes, that the country was, That was insane. That was insane. Right? It felt like a revolution. Didn't it? Yeah. I must say it did. I get goosebumps just sitting here. Yeah. I cannot even say how many thousands of people were on I alone that night. And it went on until 4 a.m. And it really felt that the movement is so strong that it will definitely bring a change. And apparently it did, because I don't remember ever. Netanyahu fired a lot of people throughout his career. I cannot recall ever that he brought back somebody after he fired him. Technically, he didn't fire him. But yeah, I get your point. Yeah, Netanyahu doesn't look back. When he makes a move, it's final. So he fires Gallant, and the country just... Fled. Kind of... The country fled with people going out with the Israeli flag, which was really touching, really amazing. You felt like it's a, a new day is born. Something you know, I just have to interject. Is... My daughter and I, we live very close to Kikar Rab in Robin Square, which is in the very central I, Tel Aviv. I, I but I get the WhatsApp message. I said, let's go. We grab our flags. We think maybe there'll be a few hundred people outside the Kiria. It yeah. was unreal. Immediately, the swarms and the density 
coming from all over. I remember I was literally driving my motorcycle towards, we didn't know exactly what's going to happen, but everybody was going towards Israeli, where, you know, right. it started. And I, I was just on the road seeing people walking with their flags, walking, just hundreds of people walking. And when we got there, it was, it started to pick up. So they went down to Ayalon. And at some point, I think on both sides of Ayalon, there were like 20, 30, 40,000 people literally on the highway dancing and singing all night long. Bonfires? Yeah. So that was definitely insane. When I first went down, I was one of the first people down on Ayalon. And there were still cars stuck. It was yes. quite interesting yes. to watch how they backed them up and yeah, got yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. out of that mess. I, I was there. You saw uh, yeah, that. Yeah, of course. And what was extraordinary was that these people stuck in their cars weren't angry. They got out and they started talking to the protesters yes. and engaging. I don't think I heard a single horn honk. I didn't see anyone lose their temper. I'm sure not everybody was thrilled to be stuck there. I wouldn't be if I was in my car. Yeah. But there was a really intense current of solidarity. You definitely felt that. It felt something happened this night that things will definitely go a, a different direction now. So you've witnessed many kind of events or moments, I think, globally over the years. You put yourself in those situations. We're now a month after that event. I'm sure you chronicled it beautifully with photographs. I share your view. I felt that night. This is history. We are, who knows where it goes and which vector it takes, but this is a historical moment. Do you feel the same way today? Unfortunately not. I'm happy to see that people understand that by delaying the whole thing of running fast and to make new rules and to change. And that was a very scary moment that people, and it ran too fast and it felt like we are losing it. And that night was different. But I'm, as I said, I'm happy to see that the protesters are still going to Kaplan and all over the country, by the way. We see it in Tel Aviv, but in 200 different locations around Israel, people go on every Saturday night to protest against what they're really afraid of is, is the losing democracy of Israel. And this is a horrifying scene that and people are really afraid of what's going to happen next. And all the red lights are there from the economic side of things and the political side of things. It's quite scary. But you don't have this storm that happened that night. Being Israeli, though, and in this very kind of volatile, extreme, intense moment, that must have been a different experience for you. No, of course, it's always different than when you're shooting your own backyard. And I remember saying that when during the period of time that there were a lot of terror attack and suicide bombings in Israel. And it's literally my backyard. I wish sometimes being a foreign photographer working in a different country where you understand how big the moment is, but it doesn't affect you in a personal way. When Because I was living not far from here. Right. During the time that there were, in, in about two years, there were over 10 terror attacks in a radius of two kilometers from my house. In Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, Which of is course. extraordinary. I remember every time there was a terror attack, I used to call my wife, asking her where she was, and knowing that there's a big chance that you will find 
someone while they're being wrapped in a plastic bag after this, these kind of attacks. And again, it was all in a radius of one or two kilometers from my house. It's very different when you think, when you, especially when you come a parent and you have kids walking in, in Tel Aviv and so on. And it's different than being a photojournalist documenting a story elsewhere. I want you to tell the story. It's a sad story. It's a tragic story. It's a heartbreaking story. But you did take a photo of the immediate aftermath of a bus bombing in Tel Aviv. Correct. 19th of October of 1994. The picture won an award in 95, but the actual bombing was October of 94. Where was it? On Dizengoff. Wow. That was the first major suicide bomber that exploded a bus. And that was a, a reaction to the Oslo Agreement. It was all very new. It was the first in a chain that after there were like so many buses that exploded and cafes, of course. But that was the very first reaction to Oslo and bus number five, it was called. I arrived so fast that the bodies were still burning and they were like just at the beginning of the first few policemen and border police. The first one who just came and started to evacuate the wounded from the scene which was horrifying. I have to admit, I, I've never seen anything like that before. And it was really heartbreaking. I was shooting film, obviously, at the time. So after the first few minutes I was there, the paper sent over a taxi driver to pick up my film. So when I got to the paper, they already printed a second edition of the newspaper, which I haven't seen my pictures because I was just sending my film away. And that was the first time I saw my images were that were literally printed on the front cover of the newspaper of Yediot Achonot. As hard as it was, and I have to admit it, I did ask myself some questions if I'm doing the right thing, if I should keep on, you know, being a photojournalist, because I was a bit shocked and I would even say traumatic from this event. I mean, if this is what my career is going to look like, if I'm strong enough to, uh, to handle it. Right. Because it, I was, you know, very emotional about, about this specific event. You know, it's funny to say, but the advantage that I had with the fact that I covered probably like 50 terror attacks that came after is that based on my experience, I knew exactly what I was going to and what I'm going to go through. That's how crazy it sounds, but that was, you know, having the experience of, of seeing one, you know what to expect when a terror attack happens. But this specific image, in a way, kind of opened my international career because after it was on the cover of major magazines around the world, including the cover of Time magazine and double pages in Stern magazine and in Paris Match and the cover of New York Times and Newsweek ran I mean, it was literally everywhere. And it won a few awards. And that kind of brought me to the international level of people who saw my work. And this is how I started a few months later. And I signed up with Sigma and that's kind of brought me my first steps in the international media and international recognition. And that photograph in particular was recognized with a special prize, correct? Yeah, it, it got a world press that year, and then it was chosen as one of 200 best images throughout the years of world press in general. It's an amazing exhibition. It's an exhibition that travels around the world. 
what are your thoughts on where the country's headed and where we're at? Listen, as a photojournalist, I can't afford myself to predict the future. I, I, I shoot whatever is in front of me, and I'm really afraid of trying to predict. I have to admit that for no good reason, I'm an optimistic person. I try to be optimistic and think of a better future, and things will fall into place and get better, hopefully. Well, I hope you're right. Thank you so much for spending so much time, fascinating insights and stories. And can't wait to see what your next big project is going to be. Thank you very much, Vivian. You will soon find out. Okay, I'll be waiting. <laughs> you cannot miss the photographs featured in our photo essay coming later this week that Ziv Corin has been speaking about in this interview. It is illuminating to see the character portrait of an individual, any individual, in images. But a man like Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu who has been such a dominant political force in Israel for decades, to have had that access and share it with us, you will see, is historically significant. We reprint all images with the permission of Ziv Korn. And yes, the photo of Ariel Sharon in the Israel Museum of Art at the Picasso exhibition, I've got it. That one hooked me as soon as I saw it. And interestingly, I had not yet met Korn and did not realize until just a few years ago that it was one of his. In the coming days, we will post on our website, stateoftelaviv.com, the photo essay accompanying this podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to sharing with you part two of my interviews with Ziv Korn and photographs very soon. We will focus on his trips to Ukraine when he managed to document events that very few photographers were able to access in Irpin, Bucha, and more. And there is no photographer anywhere who has photographed and worked with Israel's anti-terror forces as extensively as has Koren. His access speaks to how trusted he is, and his work is mind-blowing, as are his thoughts on working as an Israeli photojournalist in the West Bank and Gaza. And of course, we will close out with Israel and the night of July 24, 2023, the aftermath of the passage by the Knesset of the first law in its highly controversial judicial reform package, a night that I, and many others, will not soon forget. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. <laughs>